Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. Yeah, this is um, actually my very first time doing this, ever. My wife, Allison, will sometimes say that when she wears a dress, she feels like a man in drag, and it feels very unnatural, and I feel like that right now. So Mark chapter 7 comes in kind of three episodes. I'm not really going to spend any time, very much at least, with the first and the third. The first episode is what I'm going to call a Grinch that stole Christmas episode. We're all very familiar with like these stories in the gospel with, with Jesus interacting with the Jewish elite for the Christmas thing. The Jewish elite is like very concerned about the winners and the losers and who gets presents and who gets coal. There's a part where the Grinch is chastising the uh, who's of Whoville, which I think really captures the essence of what Jesus is doing here. So I'll go ahead and read that. <clears throat> the Grinch. There's all this Christmas glitz going on, and what the Grinch says, he says, that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what it's always been about. He goes, gifts, 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 gifts. He says, you want to know what happens to your gifts? They all come to me in your garbage. He says, you see what I'm saying? In your garbage. I could hang myself with all the bad Christmas neckties I found at the dump. And the avarice, the avarice never ends. I want golf clubs. I want diamonds. I want a pony so I could ride it twice, get bored, and sell it to make glue. He says, look, I don't want to make waves, but this whole Christmas season is stupid, stupid, stupid. The Grinch. Here's the Jesus take when he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, that's what it's all been about, isn't it? That's what it's always been about. Tradition, rules, tradition, rules. You want to know what happens to all of your impressive traditions? They all get flushed away in your garbage. I could hang myself with all the bad traditions and rules that I find at the dump. And the avarice, the avarice never ends. I want ceremonial hand-washing. I want no gum-chewing on the Sabbath. I want to avoid taking care of my parents under the guise of holiness. Look, I don't want to make waves, but this whole set of man-made rules is stupid, stupid, stupid. Now, I recognize that's a very Protestant, very like post-Reformation way of capturing uh, uh, Pharisees and Jewish laws. I'm aware that it's a bit of a caricature, but it is tapping into the live wire of something that's going on. The third episode involves uh, Jesus healing a deaf mute uh, by giving him a wet willy and spitting in his mouth. Um, I'm not going to comment on it other than to say it's, it's really, it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's what's most interesting and what struck me the most when I was preparing for this. So I will go ahead and reread the center story, which has to do with the um, Syrophoenician woman. It says, from there, Jesus set out for the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house where he didn't think he'd be found, but he couldn't escape notice. He was barely inside when a woman who had a disturbed daughter heard where he was. She came and knelt at his feet, begging for help. The woman was Greek, Diophanesian by birth. She asked him to cure her daughter. He said, stand in line and take your turn. The children get fed first, and if there's any left over, the dogs get it. She said, of course, master, but dogs under the table get scraps dropped by the children. Jesus was impressed. You're right. On your way, your daughter is no longer disturbed. The demonic affliction is gone. She went home and found her daughter relaxed on the bed, the torment gone for good. So that was like kind of a little bit of a more uh, generous reading, I think. In some translations, Jesus just calls her a dog, which is pretty wild. So this is the second time in Mark's gospel where Jesus enters um, Gentile territory. It says he was in Tyre, and Tyre and Israel have like long-standing, thousand-year-old Old Testament beef. Like they, they don't like each other. So that Jesus is there at all is pretty wild for a rabbi. 
And so there's several ways to approach the text. I, mean, I don't know which one's correct, so I'll give you guys some options. I obviously have opinions. Well, the first option is that Jesus was just caught off guard. And I think that we do have like at least some biblical witness for this. You can make what you want of it theologically. But there are many times, the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God, at least in the text anecdotally, seems surprised. He says, like, where are you in the Garden of Eden, for example? So it's possible that Jesus made an authoritative pronouncement. He encountered a superior rhetorician and then relented. So it's possible that Jesus just encountered someone that like outwitted him and he was impressed by that. I mean, you could say that Jesus was God, but Jesus was also man. And it does say throughout the New Testament that Jesus like grew in wisdom and he learned. <laughs> so it's not like he was out of the gate a genius. I have this like little quote from the philosopher Paul Copan. He says that in Jesus' limited and developing human consciousness, Jesus grew and developed in an earthly, first century, Aramaic-speaking Jewish awareness of the world. Reading the scriptures, he saw, with increasing clarity, his messianic status. He struggled, experienced a range of human emotions, and deepened in obedience and submission to his Father's will. I just wanted to bring that up because like, I think that is potentially relevant here. Maybe Jesus was just caught off guard. There's a second option that Jesus was not caught off guard. And he just took a jab at her to see how much faith she really had. I see this interpretation everywhere. A lot of the translations I read, like the heading says something similar to that. Like Jesus tests this woman and sees her great faith. Little dark. <laughs> it's like this Syrophoenician woman, she didn't just have like regular faith. She had like super faith, like not the free ads version, but the full premium product of faith. Yeah. And Jesus got that out of her by taking a jab at her. I have a quote to that effect. Not only did she approach Jesus, demonstrating at least by action at a minimum her belief that he could potentially heal her daughter, but she remained steadfast through initial rejection. Not, in scholar Mark Strauss's words, because he is a reluctant father who is slow to meet the needs of his people, but because he wants us to step out in greater dependence and deeper trust in his ability to accomplish far more than we can ask or imagine. I don't particularly like that, but it is an option. Um, God poked at her to see if he can wrestle some faith out of her. The third option is I think this is supposed to be funny, which I thought was a novel insight. And I was telling Allison about it in bed. And I was like, I think Jesus is trolling her. And I, I thought it was a novel insight, but it clearly wasn't. But it is interesting how many commentaries don't mention it. And the ones that do give no explanation. So um, N.T. Wright is a, just a famous New Testament scholar. He has a series called The New Testament for Everybody. It's just like simple commentaries in every chapter. And at the beginning of his on Mark, he's like, this is a bit of fun banter from Jesus, but doesn't explain it at all. So I would like to take a stab at explaining it a little bit, at least anecdotally. I'm going to show you guys a Lord of the Rings clip. So I'm super into Lord of the Rings like this past year. So there's a battle at Helm's Deep, <laughs> which is in the second installment of the Two Towers. And I, I remember being a middle schooler-ish when these came out. And there's a scene, which we'll show you, where Legolas and Gimli are having this, like, banter in the middle of a battle, and it's supposed to be funny, and it is funny. I'm going to show you guys that, and then I'm going to read you the text of it to show you how boring and unfunny it is. Legolas! I'm on 17! Ah! I don't know! Point the out! I'm scoring me! Ah! 19! Ah! <laughs> so I, I remember seeing those scene and, like, much like this room and when I was seeing in theaters, like everyone was kind of laughing at like the constant banter between the two because they have this like love-hate thing. And I remember I saw the movies as a young person and I read the books as an adult and I have a controversial take. The movies are way better. It's crazy. But I remember when I was getting to the Battle of Helm's Deep, I was like excited to read that banter in the book. I'll read it to you guys. 
It says, two, said Gimli, patting his axe. He had returned to his place on the wall. Two, said Legolas. I have done better, though now I must grope for spent arrows. All mine are gone, yet I make my tale of twenty-two at least. But that is only a few leaves in the forest. A few paragraphs later. Twenty-one, cried Gamli. He hewed a two-handed stroke and laid the last orc at his feet. Now my count passes Master Legolas again. A few paragraphs later. Twenty-one, said Gimli. Good, said Legolas, but my count is now two dozen. It has been knife work up here. I remember reading that and I was like, this is not funny even a little bit. And how masterfully, like whoever prepared that script and the tone and the character in which they present it, after it's been shown to me, I'm like, oh, this is supposed to be funny. So I think that this is what Jesus is doing here. Why I say I think he's trolling too is that he's like acquiescing to like a shared world view that he knows they both have. Like, I'm sure she's very aware that Jewish people call Gentiles dogs. And I think he's playing with that. Like from my own world, I was super into straight edge since I was like 14 into like my, when I was like 26, I stopped being straight edge. If anybody doesn't know, straight edge is like an offshoot of like hardcore culture. And it's like really committed to like not drinking and not doing drugs. It's supposed to be like not having promiscuous sex either, but no one cares about that one. <laughs> Just the drugs and drinking. And I remember being a young person and I was like, I will never drink. I was like so committed to straight edge. Like me and all my friends were, we all have straight edge tattoos. We were super into it. It was like the entire world that we shared. None of us are straight edge anymore. And sometimes I'll see someone at a bar that I haven't seen since high school. And I know they were straight edge and we're both drinking. I'll go up and I'll be like, Hey, sellouts always sink. But I'm joking, and they know that I'm joking. But if, if someone were to just write that down, they'd be like, Garrett's kind of a jerk. He just like sees all these people from high school and calls them sellouts. But I'm messing around. And I think Jesus is messing around. There's this New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight that I really like. And so he has a, an article called The Jesus You Never Expected. It's like very short, popular level article. And it lists like 10 things about Jesus that you wouldn't expect if you were also a first century Palestinian Jew. Among them is that Jesus was free, and that Jesus was bold, and that Jesus was like a lightning rod. In Luke 7, at dinner one night, a Pharisee sees Jesus interacting with a converted prostitute, and uh, he concludes that Jesus is not a prophet, because if he was a prophet, he would know this was an ex-prostitute and wouldn't interact with her. But, and this is just the text of Luke, it says, turning to the woman, so he's not even acknowledging the Pharisee, he's looking at her, but talking to the Pharisee, he says, so it says, turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I came to your home, you provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? She was forgiven many, many sins, and so she is very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Then he spoke to her, I forgive your sins. And I feel like this is the Jesus that we see, like the one that's like interacting with ex-prostitutes and um, drunks and sinners, and that that's all well and good, and it's part of the Jesus that we love. But I contend that we add to Scott McKnight's list that Jesus was really funny. It should be part of our worldview when we think of Jesus. So we've covered three reasons that Jesus could have called this woman a dog. I think the fourth, like beyond the humor, which I do think taps into a live wire, I think the fourth reason that Jesus potentially had this interaction with this woman where... He called her a dog and then she beats him in like a small debate is I think he lost that debate as it were, that exchange. I think he lost on purpose. My favorite way of interacting with uh, kids is to pretend I'm like really stupid and don't know anything. And I do that to Blake. And uh, a few weeks ago, she, I was acting stupid and she said, uh, 
she said, you've got a lot to learn, dude. It's like, it's a a good point, Blake. (laughs) But I think that's a little bit of what's going on here too. I think Jesus did it because it's an instructive moment and is so characteristic of how Jesus has interacted specifically with women and then how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and like men of learning, so to speak. Also, it's worth mentioning when they're in Tyre and Jesus is like trying to keep a low profile and isn't doing public things, it's very likely that his disciples were there. Like he just wanted to like interact with the disciples and teach them. So I think this is like a kind of a public episode when he's interacting with this Phoenician woman. And what's interesting about this is that when his opponents are like learned rabbis, he's so quick on his feet and knows exactly what he's doing. And he just slaps them down and like they look stupid. But when he's interacting with a Gentile woman from somewhere where that has like outright hostility to him and his people, when she's from a disparaged background, she shuts him down in one sentence, she just goes, you're wrong. And he goes, that's a, that's a really good point. And he, I think he does it because when the learned rabbis do it, he fights back. But when it's someone that's like oppressed and if he loses a public debate to this person, he's like disqualified from like being a Jewish rabbi anymore. And he just like does it in front of people and he's like, what now? So I think to um, quote our boy, Paul, God has chosen what the world calls foolish to shame the wise. He's chosen what the world calls weak to shame the strong. Also, interestingly about this episode she's the first character in mark's gospel to grasp the scope and power of uh, jesus redemptive work she sees that it's for the jews but it's also for everybody so i think that the episode comes in the middle there after jesus chastises the pharisees to indicate that he meant what he said about the clean and unclean uh, categories being swept away that the dogs at the table were already sharing the children's bread they didn't have to wait and soon enough they wouldn't be dogs at all that's it thanks guys We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.